fellow Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this is the podcast for the Royal Observatory's astronomy engagement team. We are the education team at the Royal Observatory. My name is Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And this podcast is split into two. So the first half, we talk about what's in the night sky for the next month. So in this case, for August. And then in the second half, we each talk about a cosmic news story that came out in the last month or so. Awesome. Let's get going. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Throughout the month, the constellation of Ursa Major, or the Great Bear, is visible just above the horizon to the northwest, containing the famous Plough Asterism, which is also known as the Big Dipper in parts of North America. If you manage to spot this familiar shape and follow an imaginary line through the two stars in the front of the pan, they're called Merak and Dube, to the next prominent star, you'll find Polaris, which is our north star. This star is very close to the North Celestial Pole, meaning that if you ever get lost at night and don't have a compass, you can use it to find your bearing. If you follow the other end of the plough, the second star along the handle is actually not one star, but two systems of multiple stars, Alcor and Mizar. These two are an optical double and have been captivating astronomers for decades. So Alcor is a binary system, and Mizar is actually four stars gravitationally bound together. The separation between the two is large enough that the pair can just be resolved with the unaided eye, and they were used to test vision among many cultures in the past. But it's not clear if the two are even gravitationally bound. If you look upwards from Polaris towards your zenith, that is the top of your sky right above you, you'll see the constellation of Cygnus the Swan. At its head is the star Deneb, a supergiant variable star, which means that its magnitude is constantly changing. Nearby to this star, you might find M39, a triangular open star cluster, and if you have a pair of binoculars, you might be able to see the faint cloud of the Elephant's Truck Nebula below it. So this is an emission nebula that is now thought to be home to several very young protostars due to the compression of gas within the nebula. Although these are only visible if you have an infrared filter on your telescope. For those of you who are more interested in planetary observation, the gas giants are visible this month. So Saturn will be visible in the east all month long and can be easily seen with the naked eye. It will look like a bright yellowish white star that does not twinkle. If you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope handy, you might also be able to see Saturn's characteristic rings you'll be able to see Jupiter as well. So on the 1st of August, Saturn will rise in the east at 10pm, and it will be joined by Jupiter a couple of hours later, and then both will be visible in the sky all night long. And then, on every following day this month, both will rise a few minutes earlier each night. So with a telescope, you could also catch a glimpse of the icy giants as well. Neptune can be seen to the west of Saturn, and then Uranus to the west of Jupiter in the later part of the month. If you've missed seeing Venus in the evening sky, in the last few days of August, in the very early mornings, you can catch it just before sunrise. 
If you fancy some lunar observations, then you are in luck, as on the 1st of August, a super full moon will occur. This happens when the moon reaches the point in its orbit when it's closest to the Earth, called the perigee. Head out to an open area where the horizon is not obstructed, and look directly southeast, where the supermoon will rise at around 10pm, and then it will set in the southwest in the early hours of the morning. While this is not the best time to observe individual lunar features as there are no shadows cast on the moon, it can still be a spectacular sight. If you did want to look at some of the moon's famous seas or craters, then why not take a look in the evening of the 8th when the moon is in its last quarter phase and on the 24th when it's in the first quarter phase. When it is in these phases, the lighting angle casts long shadows on the moon's surface. And this makes craters, mountains and other features more pronounced and easily visible. See if you can spot the Sea of Tranquility where the Apollo 11 astronauts landed, or the bright Tycho crater, named after the astronomer Tycho Brahe, who collected key astronomical data that helped us move towards a heliocentric model of the solar system. In other news, between the 12th and 13th of August, you might see the peak of the Perseids, one of the best meteor showers in the year, which can reach up to 100 meteors per hour. This is a long meteor shower, usually beginning as early as the 17th of July, and continuing up until the 24th of August, so there's plenty of opportunities to watch this fantastic event. The Perseid meteors are debris from the comet 109P, also known as the Swift-Tuttle Comet, or the Great Comet of 1862, named after when it was discovered independently by two different astronomers in the same year. Very bright meteors, with a magnitude brighter than minus three, are often visible during this shower, which means they can be seen even in areas with higher levels of light pollution, like towns and cities. The conditions for this year's Perseids are especially favourable, as its maximum occurs around three days before the new moon, so the light of the moon is not going to outshine that of the meteors. Remember, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Beautiful. At the start of July, we asked you on Twitter... Um, how many swimming pools, Olympic-sized swimming pools, can that jet of uh, water from Enceladus can, can fill in 24 hours? Yes, I remember this. And we asked everyone to, to guess or to do the calculations themselves. Uh, can you tell us who was right? Who was right? I don't know, because it's anonymous. Well, they'll know if they're right. But who, what were the <laughs> options and which was the correct option? The options were 3.75, 5.25, or 12. And these are all 10 swimming pools, 12 swimming pools? Yes. Oh, okay. I was thinking like 12 million swimming pools, so I would have been way <laughs> out. Carry on. Um, do you want to guess which one is the correct answer? Oh, I mean, one of the bigger ones. Can I guess 12? You're guessing 12. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, the correct answer... It's 10.5 oh, swimming pools. 12 is so close. It is pretty close. It was pretty nice. close. Yeah. Well, congrats to the 45% of you who said 10.5 swimming yeah, pools. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good going. That's almost half. So congratulations. Nice. 
And that was about our cosmic news last month. So now we bring you some new cosmic news, some more cosmic news, in fact. Uh, would you like to go first, Ophelia? Sure. Uh, this month has been completely full of cosmic news. Loads mm. and loads and loads of news. It was uh, hard to, to pick one. I'm going to say a few honourable mentions. Yeah, um, X-rays from Mercury just announced yesterday, I believe. Well, that's time of recording, of course. Um, obviously, that's very exciting for me. Uh, also, they found some weird waves um, in at the sort of the boundary between Jupiter's magnetosphere and the solar wind. Again, very interesting for me. But the news that I want to talk about today is uh, the view, a new view of the Milky Way as seen through... I have one more honourable mention. Oh. Yes! You, you'll blow out our speakers. You didn't talk about the hot rock. Hot rocks on the moon! <laughs> yes, I forgot! Oh, my... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do this whole bit again? <laughs> no, that was really good. You just might have to unamplify yourself. <laughs> um, so there was data, observations from the moon. And they found a particularly warm rock. Can you tell us quickly, highlights, why the warm rock was interesting? The warm rock was interesting because it shouldn't have been that warm. Mm. And they said, it suggests there might have been granite or something. or uh, water, And you need water for granite to form. And actually granite is uh, pretty rare in the solar system. I mean, we all take... Granite for granted here uh, on the Earth. Lots granite of people, <laughs> lots of people have it uh, on their kitchen tabletops, for example. But yeah, mm. I that was quite a cool awesome. Thank you. I just discovery. wanted to make you say that because I like talking about rocks and I like talking about the moon. But you have chosen a different actual news story. Yes. Can you tell us your uh -huh. actual news story? So my news story is about uh, our first ever view of the galaxy. Um, as seen through the lens of neutrino particles. So the first mm. ever picture taken by something that's not light or the Ooh. or any, any part of the electromagnetic spectrum. That is pretty cool. So when we look at the Milky Way with our eyes, we see visible light. But when we use telescopes, we see either visible light or, or infrared or x-rays, but they're all electromagnetic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So what are neutrinos? So neutrinos are particles that have very, very low mass and they don't really interact very um, easily or very obviously with other matter, so other particles, for example. And that's why they're sometimes called ghost particles, They just because they just pass through things. And neutrinos are, or they can be um, emitted by stars so like the sun would release some neutrinos, but they can also be emitted when cosmic rays, which are very charged particles just out there in space, uh, collide with interstellar matter. So bits of dust or bits of gas oh. that's in between, um, between the stars. Exploding stars, supernovas, um, and some of the most high energy phenomena um, like gamma ray bursts and quasars can also give off uh, neutrinos. So there's actually quite a lot of uh, highly energetic processes in, in, in our galaxy and looking for these neutrinos is one way that we can study these, uh, these processes. Um, so we can find out more than just using light alone. Okay. But 
you can't use a telescope to see a neutrino because the neutrino wouldn't bounce off the mirror. It would just go straight through the telescope yeah. in most cases. So how did they make this picture? They used uh, what they called a rather strange telescope mm-hmm. um, that was buried deep, deep underground um, in the Antarctic ice cap. Oh, cool. Um, so it's called the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. And they use a gigaton of uh, some ultra-transparent ice. Um, and they're under huge pressure. When these cosmic, or when these neutrinos rather pass through the ice, they give off radiation called uh, Cherenkov radiation. Fantastic. Did you say a gigaton of ice? Yes. Is that 10 to the 9 tons of ice? Yes, it is. That seems That's, like a lot of ice. It's like a billion tons. Wow. I guess the Antarctic is the place. <laughs> There's a lot of ice there. <laughs> mm. Okay, so the the particles hit the ice, they give off radiation, we detect the radiation, that's how we make the picture. Yes. Awesome. And what did we find out when we looked at this picture? So the researchers had to look for a certain type of uh, interaction mm-hmm. between the, the neutrino and the ice, because you can also get... Um, neutrinos formed uh, from the atmosphere. So when these cosmic rays go through the atmosphere, they can bump into the particles there, the molecules there, and that can give off a neutrino. So they're looking for a particular interaction in the ice called a cascade, which you can only get get from these um, uh, these neutrinos that's given off by the cosmic rays from outside of the Earth's atmosphere, so from like stars and and. and those are the uh, things we talked okay. about earlier. Because otherwise, you'd take a picture just of the sky and not the. You just take a picture of yeah, the yeah. Atmosphere. It's like leaving your lens cap on. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. Um, so the ice cascade looks a bit like a uh, a spherical shower of light, and that's actually a good way to to look for these neutrinos because it's a it's a more accurate way of measuring the neutrinos' energies. And that's how they know that it's where, where they're from. They actually use uh, machine learning techniques and uh, found that there were 60,000 neutrino events uh, above a, a certain energy, so mm-hmm. uh, 500 giga electron volts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 60,000 is a lot. But an electron volt is quite small. Um, so one electron volt is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 joules. So in our day-to-day life, 500 giga electron volt is pretty small. Um, So 7% of these events were astrophysical uh, in origin, um, and then the others were just background that's generated in the Earth's atmosphere. So this picture of the Milky Way was quite faint, if we're describing it in visible light terms. Yeah, so it it will be quite faint, but when they mapped out their image over a a traditional optical image of the galaxy, um, then they they matched up quite well. So you get brighter areas uh, or more neutrinos from um, brighter parts of the Milky Way, for example. Awesome. So it works. It works. It's... Still a little bit unclear. Um, it, it just falls below uh, statistical significance. 
Um, so in science, you have to have a certain sort of amount of uncertainty. Um, and usually you want something called a five sigma standard. They're thinking about the likelihood that their results are just random. Yes. So they've detected a neutrino where the Milky Way is, but it could have just been random and it wasn't from the Milky Way. But more complex than that. Yes. And so how likely it is that it isn't random? Yes. Is your five sigma. Their result says it's uh, about one in 150,000 chance that it was a fluke. And it just happens to make a map of the Milky Way where they randomly detected particles. Mm. Okay. I mean, that sounds like good odds. Yeah. But could be better, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Always strive to improve. They are um, making the experiment bigger. Mm. So Ice Cube Gen 2 will be 10 times bigger. Wow. And so they'll get more neutrino events. Mm-hmm. Um, and currently the, the picture that they got... Uh, it's quite blurry, and uh, hopefully with Ice Cube Gen 2, they'll get a more detailed view of the Milky Way. Awesome. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, did you have a second news story? It wasn't that long ago um, when astronomers started to use the different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum to study the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in Galileo's time, um, it was all just visible light, and then eventually we use, you know, X-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, and so on. And neutrinos is, is sort of like the next step. Mm-hmm. And in the last few years, we've had a lot about gravitational waves as well, which is, I guess, another way to 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 study the universe, mm-hmm. um, not using uh, light. And recently, they found a, a new type of gravitational waves. Um, so these waves have different frequencies just like any other wave so for sound for example the frequency um, of a wave tells you how high pitched uh, the sound is all of the gravitational waves that astronomers have you know found before this one were quite uh, had quite high frequencies so they were more like chirps um, so they, those are co- uh, created when black holes collide with one another um, but this one, they found uh, an ultra-low frequency rumble made by uh, supermassive black holes um, orbiting um, one another. And there is a certain kind of star called a pulsar, uh, or a pulsating star. Um, so this star spins very quickly, and it sends out beams of radiation. And they're very um, regular. Um, so it's a bit like, um, if you're looking at a faraway lighthouse, the lighthouse uh, or the light of the lighthouse is spinning and then you can sort of time, time how, how long each sort of light pulse reaches you. So you can do the same with pulsars and these, this team found that the time of the pulsar were different to what they expected because these gravitational waves were actually moving um, past the pulsar, so they were um, stretching and, and, and compressing um, space, uh, which meant that the uh, the timings, or I guess that essentially the distance between that pulsar and us changed, and so the timing um, of, of, of the pulsar spin changed as well. I find that almost creepy. <laughs> Why? Well, I don't know. It's just a really physical example of the fact that there's these waves compressing and stretching space-time itself right in front of us. 
They pass through the earth. They pass through us. They pass through us. We 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 might be being stretched and compressed right now. We oh, won't notice it. Oh, I don't think I like it. But that is very interesting. So rather than so that how did they they discovered the wave using this pulsar, or this was just a, a side effect? The uh, CSIRO's Parkes Radio Telescope mm-hmm. had been observing a group of pulsars. Uh, for about 20 years. Wow, dedicated. Mm. (laughs) They measured the the pulses of these pulsars and found that they were, you know, they weren't as regular as uh, as we expected them to be. Um, And then that was when they realized that uh, only gravitational waves or certain, this kind of gravitational waves could could do that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So another way of learning about the universe without visible light. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Right now, gravitational wave. (laughs) Anything else you want to tell me about the pulsars? So when these gravitational waves move through space and they compress and and squeeze space-time, the distance, this actually changes the distance between the pulsar and us by just tens of meters, which sounds quite a lot, again, to to, Mm. to our everyday lives. But when you think that these pulses are about a thousand light years away from us, um, which is one with 19 zeros after it meters away from us, mm-hmm. um, it's a very, very small shift. That sort of equates to about a nanosecond of delay in, in, in these pulses. It's, I think it's amazing that we can sort of detect that small mm-hmm. uh, amount of delay. Yeah, so we should say when I'm freaking out about gravitational waves passing through us right now, it's because the stretching and compression, compressing is so incredibly minuscule that it's not like I'm going to notice the distance between me and you getting bigger and smaller, um, or my head getting bigger or smaller. <laughs> but because this is so far away, and because their precision is so accurate, they can, mm-hmm. yeah, they can work. They can sense this distance. They can, they can... work out the change in distance. Yes, by timing the the delays Mm -hmm. uh, between the pulses. Did you want to explain how we detected gravitational waves here on Earth for the first time? So the first telescope, well, instrument, shall we say, uh, was LIGO. Mm -hmm. They have two sort of like um, tubes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tubes is a fair word. (laughs) But there was, well, I guess you've got four tubes, right? Because you've got one going in one direction. Or two, sorry, two going one direction and two going in the other direction. So you've got like a cross and then you've got mirrors and lasers and things and they can measure um, how much the two tubes have sort of um, shifted by because of these gravitational waves compressing and, and, and stretching the distance between these tubes. Because of the, the laser, right? Yes, because the yeah. laser. So the laser has a longer or shorter distance to travel and again you can you can measure the um the delay delay of the signal Mm -hmm. awesome so they're real we have found them yes that would have been our cosmic news the day that was discovered (laughs) (laughs) but it was a several years ago well dr ed who is uh one of the senior managers here worked on gravitational waves and i think he did he recorded a video about it when it was discovered Nice. He was very happy when it was announced. I'm sure he was. 
Awesome. Can I now tell you my very different news story? Yes, please. So you've spoken about different ways we can learn about the, the universe as a whole using physics. Mm -hmm. uh, have you heard they've just locked four people in a room for a year over at NASA? What did they do? <laughs> they applied. It was a very competitive application <laughs> process. They volunteered to be locked in the room. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so this is CHAPIA, which is the Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog. Uh, so uh, this is an analog mission, which is something that NASA and, and other space agencies does when considering human spaceflight. What they're doing is practicing elements of human spaceflight here on Earth to see how they work and to see how people work in those environments. So this is a simulated Mars mission in America. And if we do send humans to Mars in the future, we're not going to send entire cities at once. We'll send a handful of people and they'll have to live there in isolation for a long time. Okay. So what they've done is they've got four astronauts, four hypothetical astronauts. They haven't been to space yet. And they've locked them in this sort of simulated Mars habitat. And they have to be there for 378 days in complete isolation only with each other. Ooh, why did they pick 378 days? You know, I don't know, because that's, mm. that's not quite the length of a year on Mars. Or a year on Earth. Yeah, is it roughly how long... So that'll be six months journey, right, to Mars? And then maybe six months of working on Mars? Potentially, yeah. They're thinking about different different aspects of the mission. Maybe. Um, but I just think this is really fascinating. So they're trying to they're going to study them the whole time they're in there. So you learn about uh, sort of crew behavior. You learn about logistics. You learn about cognitive impacts, which is psychologically what it does to you. Um, how they work with each other. How how sort of everything functions. So it isn't just a a stunt. Mm -hmm. It's it's a real scientific investigation, effectively. Because haven't they done this before? Maybe not NASA, but other groups. Yeah, they have. Different groups have done it in different ways, simulating different things for different lengths of time. There's also other analog missions. So, for example, Jeremy Hansen, who is one of the Artemis II astronauts, so he'll be going to the moon next year. He is, hopefully, next year or the year after. He's not been to the moon before, uh, but he has been on analog missions on the Earth. He's a cave naught. Mm. So he has done training in sort of subterranean caves here on earth uh, which isn't the same as the moon but it is an extreme harsh environment with isolation challenging circumstances and a lot of teamwork and communication needed to to survive safely right so that's kind of the building skills that you would use out in space so there's four people in this this habitat their names are kelly anchor ross and nathan and you've got a commander, a flight engineer, a medical officer, and a science officer. So it's sort of pretending to have roles that you'd have on a Mars mission. Mm. And what I like is I read the job advert for... <laughs> I sort of went back in time. So when they were uh, recruiting for this a couple of years ago, I read the advert. And it's not like, have you got nothing going on? <laughs> Are you really desperate for some peace and quiet? It's a really... Like I said, it's like... A, <laughs> you have to be between 30 and 55 years old. Uh, healthy, motivated, non-smoker, proficient in English, master's degree in a STEM field, or a thousand hours piloting an aircraft, four years of professional experience, applicants with military training, like preferred or considered. There's like a huge list of, of criteria. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You said, you know, there's a, like a medical officer, a scientific officer. Do they actually have these backgrounds in real life? So is the medical officer a doctor? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, he's worked in emergency medicine, so in mm. what we would call A&E. He's an ER physician, and he's worked in uh, sort of resource-limited areas, his, his biography said. So he's worked in challenging mm-hmm. circumstances before. So with this Mars mission, they are just sitting in Texas, but they've given them all the supplies they need for a year, and the idea is that nothing from the outside should come in. So he is the doctor for the crew, and he should have all the supplies he needs on hand for what happens mm-hmm. in, in there. Things like like plumbing and water will be coming from externally. They haven't given them a year's water supply, um, but they will be sort of measuring how much water they use and limiting it to make it as accurate as possible. Okay. So even, for example, they did some training before, the, before they call it ingress, before they went <laughs> in and shut the door. Um, they had to do training on things like inventory, because if you have a year's worth of supplies for four people in a small space... You're going to have to keep everything very organized and know where everything is. So that's logistics that humans have to practice before we go to Mars. And you get to Mars and you're like, ah, where's the spanner? (laughs) (laughs) Then it all goes wrong. I was thinking of, oh, we ran out of that food. (laughs) Oh, your favorite foods. (laughs) But yeah, so they they can't get a takeout for a whole year. Oh, that's sad. Mm -hmm. They're also going to simulate the time delay. So the Earth and Mars are different distances apart, depending on their their orbits, but it's between like eight and twenty something minutes delay. Um, so the the I'm going to call them astronauts. The astronauts in the analog um, in the Mars habitat, they'll send a message to Mission Control, being like computer systems down or something like that, mm-hmm. and then Mission Control won't receive that until a certain number of minutes later, and they won't reply mm-hmm. and send the reply for a certain number of minutes after that. So you've got a delay like you would in real life, which again makes communication and, and planning challenging. So mm. they're practicing that. So these uh, astronauts will have to wait 16 to 52 minutes then because you've got you know, the one-way time and then the reply time. Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that isn't time-delayed is medical and psychological support. So if there is an actual problem with one of the the analog astronauts, they aren't going to just let them <laughs> let them suffer for the appropriate amount of time delay. Um, but that's because it's an experiment. Right. <laughs> that would be quite cruel. <laughs> Do you think it's realistic enough, though? Because in the back of their minds, they know that they're on Earth. They know that help is just out there. I think, for me, it's almost more challenging in the in the opposite way so it's going to be really difficult because they you know they have lives and families um but if you were on the actual surface of mars you'd be like it's tough but i'm literally on mars and they have to go with it's tough and i could leave at any time but i can't uh, okay so like i think motivation would be would be tricky it doesn't have to be maybe the yeah you're right the psychology isn't exactly the same because mm-hmm. the situation isn't exactly the same but even if you're not witnessing the mental state of a real astronaut, you're still witnessing communication problems or logistics problems or resource problems like you would. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just practice, really. It's not meant to be perfect. Hmm. Would they get to go um, out on Mars walks like some of the other um, analog ex- experiments? They do. They have a little little Mars area so they can go on EVAs all suited up to their Mars area. Um, they Also, for longer EVAs, because it's not a particularly big site, so they can't walk for miles because they'll they'll hit traffic or whatever. Um, they have uh, VR headsets, so a lot of their experiments and their EVAs, their walks are going to be through virtual reality instead. Mm. Uh, something else interesting is that the whole habitat is three D printed. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, because that is one possible way you could build a habitat on Mars. It's not the only way. Um, so they thought they would practice 3D printing habitats and sort of learn about that process. Hmm. Um, they've also made... They're trying to recreate an environment on Mars. If we 3D print on Mars, we'll use Martian soil or rock for that process. So they've made all of the walls a like reddish color <laughs> because they would be a reddish color then. <laughs> uh, they have given them two toilets though, which is quite generous <laughs> for four people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we've ever had a house with more than one toilet for, you know, when there's four of us. Yeah, because if you think about they, ha- they, they also have crew quarters, so they have bedrooms mm. and they have a living space and a, like an exercise space. Um, there's people all over the earth living inside with other people in, in cramped environments. <laughs> That's not unusual. But I think the fact that you can't leave, you can't go for a walk, you can't go to work, there's no sort of, no release from each other mm. is going to be the, the interesting part of it mm. psychologically. And I suppose if one toilet breaks, they've got another one. That's true. And yeah. Yeah, what's the other one? Well, they fix the other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like analog missions or sort of human spaceflight because it also brings in different careers and different strands of science into yeah. astronomy, right? So if you're designing a Mars habitat, you need designers, you need architects, you need people who think about interior design and space and color and light. Um, because it's a human endeavor, so you need sort of human. You need to think about what artwork you put on the walls. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, engineers and, and different kinds of science and medical professionals and all mm. of that. And plumbers and electricians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll need electricians <laughs> on Mars. <laughs> a couple other things on, on analog missions, so on these practice missions. I said they do them in caves. Um, you mentioned that one of your news stories was set in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. The Antarctic is also a place where they do analog missions because it's an isolated environment. Um, so those, there's practice simulations there as well. And also just under the sea, mm. um, subsea missions, because that's a way of practicing in a different environment, isolated environment. Yeah. You have to wear an equivalent of a spacesuit for your EVAs, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, com- yeah, it's completely different to what most people are used to yeah living Mm -hmm. on land and yeah yeah uh the the four people who were going to go into the mars habitat one of them by the way Mm. was anchor was a backup crew member and five days before ingress five days before the door closed uh, she was bumped up to be prime crew wow so presumably she's gone through the same training but mentally she only had five days notice before going inside for a whole year (laughs) wow Um, Have you heard about the bed rest analogs? Yes, yes. Um, you literally lie on a bed for, well, I can't remember the, the length of time now, um, to see how weightlessness sort of affects a, a human's body, right? Because um, that's the best way that we could recreate uh, microgravity on the Earth. Yeah, yeah, and see what lack of... Mm. lack of exercise like exercise or activity mm. or lack of movement does to a human body mm. um, I would find that the most hard <laughs> <laughs> I was reading about what these astronauts will be doing with their year in this in this habitat uh, they have jobs to do there they have a mission to simulate science experiments to do um, but they'll also have some some downtime mm-hmm. and just we assume like actual Mars exploration, or just like with 
International Space Station missions, astronauts can take personal items with them. So these analog astronauts have taken personal items into the habitat, including, for example, one of them was talking about crafting and, and doing beading and doing knitting. Uh, somebody has a mini ukulele. <laughs> somebody has an electric guitar, very importantly, with headphones, <laughs> so they're not like blasting it out for everyone else. Um, do you know what you would take, either to the analog mission or to the surface of Mars? Yes. Mm -hmm. I would have to bring some kind of game console to play on. I'm pretty sure they mentioned a PS4. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to say any brand names, but you just went there. <laughs> It was in the NASA article. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a PS4. Uh, so you would take a games console? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the small light ones? No, because they they're they not as good as oh, okay. the actual gaming consoles. <laughs> it has to be realistic. I would, knowing me, I would prob probably play a game where you are traveling out in space. <laughs> <laughs> You were like, I, sh I should be piloting this spacecraft, but instead I'm piloting this pretend yeah. spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> nice, good choice. Mm -hmm. What about you? I asked you the question without a reply ready in my head, uh. so I was trying to think as you, as you were talking. <laughs> um, I have a like an e-book, which has thousands of, of books on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be very important. I would need a lot of reading mm -hmm. material. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe a book or multiple books. Okay. Mm. There are so many things. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good start, though. Yeah. We could have that as our, as our question for this month. Yeah, I think so. So to everyone listening, we want you to think about what you would take to Mars. Now, I don't know the weight limitations because we're not currently on our way to Mars, um, but I think fairly practical, mm -hmm. Fit, fitting in a suitcase. Yeah. Yeah. Or a backpack. Let's say a backpack. A backpack, even smaller. Yeah, okay. Like a rucksack type thing. Yeah. has to be an item that would fit in a backpack. Um, <laughs> ideally, one that won't make your crewmates hate you because <laughs> collaboration and teamwork are important. <laughs> uh, nice. Awesome. Do you have... Anything else you haven't told me about that you want to tell me about? The Cosmic Diary this month was co-written by Lexi, who writes a, a lot of our uh, Cosmic Diary scripts, and also Elliot, who was our work experience student. So well done, Elliot. Thank you, Elliot, for all of your words. If that makes you think about our work experience program, we've got information on our website. Yes, yes, and you can apply. And you can do your work experience with us next year. Mm. But all that's left to say now is keep looking up.